The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Thank you very much, and welcome to those of you in the room, as well as to those of you on ACB Media and on Zoom. Uh, my name is Chris Prentice. I'm the immediate past president of the American Association of Visually Impaired Attorneys. Uh, we just had an election last week. Our new president is Steve Blow. He's here with us as well. Uh, this session this afternoon from 4 until 5.15 uh, Central Time is a review of uh, recent decisions by the United States Supreme Court. And it is our our privilege and our honor once again to uh, get to listen to this update from Professor Bill Pyatt, who is a uh, distinguished professor at uh, St. Mary University School of Law in uh, San Antonio, Texas. Uh, Bill and I are longtime friends. Uh, he is a constitutional law professor as well as uh, he's taught many other classes, written many books as well, uh, and uh, has done a lot of work to be ready to uh, present on the decisions of the Supreme Court that have just been handed down at the end of this this past term. So uh, so as not to waste any more time, I'm going to go ahead and uh, give the mic to Bill. And uh, Bill, thanks for joining us. And the table is yours. Go for it. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the introduction. And thank you all for having me back again. Um, Chris and I are friends. We've been friends for about 30 years. A uh, long time ago in our past lives when I was teaching at Texas Tech and Chris was in solo practice in Lubbock, uh, in Lubbock we used to ride around West Texas handling plaintiff civil rights cases. And uh, we were young and idealistic, and now we're old and idealistic. And so it's always a great pleasure to be able to work with Chris again. So I have picked six of the top cases, I think, that are important. And I added a seventh just because it's a personal favorite of mine. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to, with your indulgence, kind of go over the six cases and then briefly talk about the seventh so that uh, I can give you at least a summary and a perspective of the important cases that the Supreme Court has decided this year. Of course, they're, they're all important cases, but there are some that stand out. And because so many of these have received publicity already, I'm going to assume that everybody has at least some working knowledge of some of these cases. But I just wanted to go through this. And I also wanted to let you know that as I'm discussing these cases, please feel free to discuss them with us. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, go ahead and interrupt me or notify the moderator, however it is you want to handle it. But um, I would be happy to stop the presentation, discuss it with you, and then we'll continue. So it doesn't have to be, and I hope it's not going to be a monologue. Just as a preliminary, the opinions I express uh, are not those of anybody except me and uh they're worth about i don't know my opinions and a dollar fifty or two dollars and get you a cup of coffee somewhere but at least I, i'll share with you some ideas that may cause us to think a little bit about these cases so just even before i begin talking about them you know there have been some blockbuster cases issued in the last well last days of the term and you also know that there's been a lot of public criticism of the of the supreme court and I think some of the criticism uh, may be exaggerated. Um, the recent criticism, the suggestion that the this Supreme Court is striking down or modifying precedent in a way that has never been done before, just isn't accurate. Uh, I did some checking, and the court recently, this court, the Roberts Court, has modified or stricken other precedent much less frequently than other courts going back to World War II, including the Warren Court, the Burger Court, the Rehnquist Courts. And the other thing that you would get the impression from just listening to media response is that the Supreme Court is politically aligned on a 6-3 split and that all the cases are being decided by a conservative six majority against the three liberals. And that's just not true. Of the six top cases that I'm going to talk with you today, uh, seven cases, uh, actually only three, only four of them uh only three were the 6-3 split. Four were either unanimous or split involving liberals and conservatives. So I know we don't believe the media. We 
as attorneys have the opportunity to dig in a little bit deeper. And so that's what I'm hoping we're going to be able to do today. So here's the cases we're going to discuss. We're going to discuss, and these are roughly in reverse order of when they were decided. Uh, we'll take up the six three cases first, the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, the 303 Creative LLC versus Elanis, and Biden versus Nebraska. We're also going to talk about a case that was decided in the last days of the term, a unanimous decision, Groff versus DeJoy. We're going to talk about U.S. versus Texas, an 8-1 decision. We're going to talk about Allen versus Milligan, redistricting, a 5-4 decision. And then my favorite thrown at the end, one of my favorites is Halen versus Brackeen, a uh, 7-2 decision. So with no further ado, let me get started on our first case, and that is Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard. And again, if you have anything you need to add to the discussion or questions, please, please, please let me know. All right, so as you know, this case is the case that held that the affirmative action programs, the programs at Harvard and North Carolina, which were giving preference to race minority students as part of the admissions process, was held to be unconstitutional as a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, this was a 6-3 decision based on the 14th Amendment. This shouldn't have been a surprise. Actually, the, the opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts is an excellent summary of the court's jurisprudence regarding affirmative action in education. And he highlights a case that I've taught my students for the last 20 years, and that is the Grutter case in 2003, where the Supreme Court upheld the limited use of race in admissions decisions, but cautioned that that was only supposed to be a temporary solution and told us all way back then that it, the court expected that within 25 years, there would be no need for affirmative action because the court said that would be enshrining a permanent justification for racial preferences, which would offend the unambiguous guarantees of equal protection in the Constitution. So we've, we've seen this coming basically for 20 years when it finally is decided it does create a shockwave. I, I don't know if people were not aware of the Grutter case or didn't think it was really going to happen. But the, the Harvard case is the situation where Harvard was admitting people based upon a number of factors, the so-called holistic approach. And one of those factors was race, because the admissions people at Harvard thought they needed to have a racial mix in the entering class and apparently the people at harvard thought without a racial preference there was going to be a reduction in the number of minorities admitted but ironically when they're talking about minorities that they want to have in the class they excluded asian americans from the affirmative action process and that was frustrating to the asian americans and it was obviously and ultimately determined to be race discrimination aimed at the Asian Americans and aimed at anybody who did not fall within the, the minority groups that the Harvard Admissions Committee was seeking to admit. That's kind of an oversimplification of everything that was going on. Okay, now, this is not the end of the discussion, obviously. Harvard is has already announced that they're going to do what they can to try to continue diversity. Um, I saw an interview with the law school dean, who's also an author of a constitutional law case book, kind of shocking. Well, this was before the opinion came out, but he said that he acknowledged that he took race into account in faculty hires. And, and that's contrary to California law that has outlawed affirmative action in, uh, in higher education and a number of other areas. But even more shocking, this is a law school dean, and he said, but I will deny this if I'm ever deposed. I'll deny ever having this conversation. So I also teach ethics. And I'm a little concerned that we have figures who are announcing, number one, they're going to act unlawfully. Number two, that they'll deny under oath that they are acting unlawfully or ever made the statements. Be that as it may, Harvard has announced that they're going to continue to try to find ways to diversify their audience, their, their enrollment. I think probably... All of us would agree, I hope all of us would agree, that the ability to study law, to practice law, to teach law, 
does not inherently reside in one small segment or two small segments or three small segments of the population to the exclusion of others. The difficulty is when admissions committees are making their decisions, if they are relying on standardized testing and maybe even sometimes grade point average, it has produced a result where minority students are not as competitive. And that could be for a number of reasons. That could be issues with the educational system going back to when they entered kindergarten. It could be ineffective college teaching. It could be just a lack of resources. It could be insufficient role models. It could be any number of explanations, although I don't think it's inherently the inability of the minority students to be able to, to score well on the tests. So what I imagine is going to happen is I'll bet there'll be a lot of institutions like Harvard and others that will quit using standardized tests because that gives a relatively objective way of determining here how student one is faring, here's how student two is faring, here's how student three is faring. And if student number three does not belong to a protective, protected class and doesn't get in even with equal or higher scores, there's going to be the specter of race discrimination, unlawful violation of the equal protection involved. The other thing is the opinion itself kind of gives a broad approach that, that schools might still use to take race into account to some extent. And that is, in his majority opinion, the Chief Justice said that schools could continue to use a personal statement. Students who are applying to college or law school could put in their statement how it is that they overcame racial discrimination or racial, uh, racial disadvantage. And the court said that would go to showing the student's courage and determination. It would relate to the student's experience and not necessarily just the student's race. So if I had to guess, I would guess that what's going to happen is schools are going to continue to look for minority candidates and find ways to identify those candidates and find ways to give those candidates an edge up in the admissions process. It's going to be much more difficult for a plaintiff who doesn't belong to one of those categories to challenge the admissions process if it's based to a great extent on personal statements, because you would have to, if you're going to challenge that, read how many thousands of personal statements in order to be able to try to pull out elements that you think or the plaintiff thinks is skewing the results on a racial basis. Um, let's see. I see. We question. do have a question. Very good. Tell me what the question is, but I'm having trouble juggling papers and everything. Okay, Ted. Listening to the um, um, report on this particular decision on NPR via Nina Totenberg, she made a couple of interesting points. Number one was who was exempted, i.e. Federal, federal military schools and police training academies. And she went on to say that the court, even the court couldn't stomach the idea of all white police officers uh, patrolling all black, um, all black neighborhoods. Um, and then the other, the other thing is, and, and this wasn't from Nina, this was from another commentary I saw, which was that they, the expectation now is that the college admissions process is going to get more cumbersome because they're going to be requiring, um, they're going to be requiring students of all races to write individual papers, and they're going to have to start reading all of those papers and checking them. So just, yes. just be aware. Thank you. Good observations. So anyway, uh, and as Ted points out, the opinion makes it's, it's clear it doesn't apply to every institution of higher education, and it doesn't apply beyond the decision regarding academic institutions. So we don't know if this means, although we can suspect that it would probably mean the end of affirmative action programs taking race into account in many other contexts. And those may be the context that we have to explore in, in further cases. But yes, it will make the admissions process cumbersome. But let me just say, it's already cumbersome. I'm not speaking specifically about the school where I teach, but I've had the good fortune to teach at a number of law schools. And every place traditionally has an admissions committee, and every place traditionally sets up a presumptive admit qualifications, combination of GPA and in law schools, LSAT. And then there is a category of presumptive denials. 
and the committees usually review the ones in the middle. The presumptive admits get the letters of admission. The people in the middle are reviewed by a faculty panel or one faculty member who reads it and then makes recommendations and the presumptive denials don't get in. The other thing is, it's a fluid process. There is no such thing as like a fixed absolute number of slots in any particular school. Schools always over-admit. They admit more people than they think are going to actually enroll. The elite, so-called elite schools probably don't have to admit that many more because they know the people they accept may come in, except they are competing also with other elite schools. I know some schools have to admit two or three times the number of, of seats in order to fill the slots. And still, they don't know until the very last minute how many people are going to come into the school. So it's not like there are empty chairs and you're picking people and sticking them in the chair. And oops, the room's full and that's it. It's fluid. It's more than just a, a total numbers game. It's, a, it's always a guess. Private schools have to figure in a budget. They have to figure out how many students they need to make the payroll. And so it is a very complex process. Let's see. I think I see a hand up, Doreen. Yes, we do have Doreen. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I have a couple of questions because I know you talked about this ruling in the, the original ruling, assuming that discrimination would go away in 20 years. Um, that has not happened. Um, and I wonder, I know this, I saw, I heard the same NPR report that the other gentleman talked about. And um, they talked about there were a large number of friend of the court briefs attesting to the value of their diversity efforts. And I wonder, I don't know whether you know whether any of, any of the friend of the court briefs ad address the issue of whether or not discrimination has gone away. Um, okay. I also have a thought as an alumni interviewer for a fairly elite college, but I don't want to take that up. I want other people to have time to have questions. So, Yes, and um, you're, you're right. So in 2003, the court was predicting that in 20 years, uh, 25 years, peace would rule the planet and love would guide the stars. So it was an optimistic view. I don't think that the court thought there would be no more discrimination, but I thought the court was thinking there would not be the need to engage in affirmative action to bring minorities in. And I'm not sure the court at that point was thinking, well, what do you do with picking which minorities you're going to favor? How does that work? And then even in the admissions process, there's always a big discussion. If you decide you want to admit minorities, what minorities do you admit? How do you decide who even belongs to that class of minorities? And what's the ultimate goal? So do you take a minority student whose parents are graduates of elite law schools and give that person a preference over a white kid from Appalachia who's first generation college, who might have an interest in going back and doing social work and, and social justice work in their communities. It's a, it's a very difficult situation. And what the court is telling us, okay, fine, we're not gonna put race into that factor. You can put the other things into the factor where you're gonna end up sending people with your degrees. If you have a school that wants to serve the entire community, you probably want to train corporate lawyers. You want to train people who are going to do public interest work. You want to train plaintiff's attorneys. You want to train defense attorneys. You want to bring people in who are going to be able to relate to communities because of language abilities. It's a it's a, a challenge. And so, yes, it's going to become a heck of a lot more complicated. Okay, anybody else? We have some other cases. Uh, I mean, we could talk hours on this one, but... Here's some others we could talk hours on. So let's talk about the 303 Creative LLC versus Elena's case. 6-3 decision holding that the First Amendment prohibits the state of Colorado from forcing a website designer to create expressive designs, speaking messages with which the designer disagrees for personal reasons, for religious reasons. All right, again, 6-3 decision, controversial. Uh, it's being, I think, mischaracterized as an attempt to discriminate against LGBTQ people. But, and that is one perspective that could be taken from it. Although both sides stipulated that the uh, the designer, the web designer, was not discriminating against uh, people based on their sexual orientation or their race, their creed, their disability. 
In fact, they stipulated that Ms. Smith is willing to, quote, willing to work with all people regardless, regardless of classification, such as race, creed, sexual orientation, and will gladly create custom graphics and websites for clients of any sexual orientation, but she will not produce content that contradicts biblical truth regardless of who orders it. So you have a revisitation of the Masterpiece Cake case, maybe giving the Supreme Court the chance to, to add some clarity to the situation. Again, there is a long line of precedent, which we're always familiar, that not only do we have a right in this country to express ourselves, we have the right not to express ourselves. We have a First Amendment right not to say anything, and we definitely have a First Amendment right to refuse to mouth a government-dictated speech with which we have personal objections. This is not the first time the court has reached this opinion, going all the way back to uh, West Virginia Board of Education versus Burnett, when West Virginia attempted to force students to recite the Pledge of Allegiance, some Jehovah's Witnesses challenged that, saying religiously they could not do that, and the Supreme Court agreed and talked about the touchstone. If there's any touchstone, it's that the government can't force you to say things you don't want to say. So this opinion was written by Gorsuch, some very strong dissents, some dissents that have spilled out into the media. Uh, I think it is consistent with the way the court has been respecting freedom of speech, and now in this case, freedom not to speak. And it doesn't preclude the person who is creating the design from refusing to create the message, but that person would be in violation of the public accommodations law if that person said, we don't serve, we don't we don't provide any services to gay couples. We don't provide any services to ex-minority people. That would be the problem. But I heard someone say, and this is extreme, but I heard someone say this would be like trying to force a Holocaust survivor to put a KKK message on a website or in a cake, forcing that person to say things with whom they have violent disagreements. So again, a difficult case from the perspective of not very many people have read some of these earlier Supreme Court cases and might think this is the Supreme Court's just going off the ledge saying that the state can't force people to speak. Colorado seemed to be very vehement in trying to enforce their statute. Okay, anybody have any questions, comments? And again, my perspectives are just mine, they're nobody else's. Area code 510 ending in 844. Thank you. Professor Pratt, what, uh, Steve Mendelson here. What bothers me about this case is that I don't see where you get Article Three standard. Uh, I think, from what I understand, and I may be wrong, uh, that uh, basically uh, the plaintiff in this case provoked the case herself in the absence of any request that she do anything. And if Colorado was, uh, shall we say, aggressive, it was because she, they were goaded. Yeah, she, you're right. She filed a lawsuit and she sought an injunction to prevent the state from forcing her to create websites. Now, she wasn't just operating in a vacuum because that uh, Masterpiece Cake case, that plaintiff has been, he's been the subject of requests over and over to create messages, cakes, things that he disagrees with. She could see the handwriting on the wall. She knew how aggressive Colorado was. Colorado could have refused to take the bait. Um they could have either said, yeah, go ahead, make whatever you want or withdraw whatever you want, but they they resisted it. And uh, they, let's see, they were they were quite aggressive in their defense. They fought it all the way through. They won at the 10th Circuit, and then they lost once it got to the Supremes. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Doreen. So there's just a report of, on MSNBC where a reporter so the lawsuit named a situation that apparently claimed that a situation had happened the day after the case was filed where someone and the specific name was cited had approached her about doing a website for a gay wedding. So this reporter reached out to the guy that was listed in the complaint, who's a web designer in San Francisco, but he's straight and married to a woman and um, I'm wondering whether that fact, I, I, I basically, I think the case shouldn't have been brought because I think there's lots of ways 
to not have to say, I agree with the first questioner that this person, this person, well, I don't think that's what he's exactly said. I think this person should have just not brought the case and that whatever the organization that was helping her was looking to make an example. And I think there's an important religious liberty issue here. But I wonder what your thoughts are about whether this new fact changes anything about the case. I don't Thank think you. Okay. First of all, I don't think it would change anything. I think what the court talked about was not just one person's request. It was the plaintiff's concern that going forward, there would be any number of requests. So maybe if the, if the first one was a phony, doesn't mean that others wouldn't be in the pike. So a number of important Supreme Court cases are based on a, on a flawed premise of factual occurrences. Um, I'm thinking of a case that arose in, in Texas where an allegedly gay couple, a man was arrested, and so used that as a vehicle to challenge the anti-sodomy case. As it turns out, I saw a, a review of a book in the New Yorker that said the guy and his and his boyfriend had had quarreled. The boyfriend was jealous and went out and called the police and said all this stuff was going on. And the stuff that the police put in the report never happened. So it's not just the, I mean, the facts are important to bring the case, but the fact that plaintiffs might be fudging a little bit, if there's an important principle, I think things are ultimately going to get to the court. If the court thinks that there is going to be a repeated process. And I think there was enough reason to believe in Colorado that there was going to be continued pressure. I mean, the Colorado statute and the commission was requiring people to go through uh, re-education, uh, make public apologies, uh, take things off the website. I, I think that that one fact probably would not have affected the outcome of the case is a simple answer. I could be wrong. Hi, this is a question in the room. Um, this is Rylan Rogers. And one of the pieces that I've heard in the, the disability community is this concern that the case, um, you know, rolled against per, uh, access to a public accommodation for someone in a protected class, and what does that mean in terms of precedent that could impact similar issues for people with disabilities? And I wondered if you could speak to your thoughts on that issue. Okay, first of all, my reading of the case is that it does not deny public accommodations to to anybody. What it does is it protects the right of the business operator not to make a statement in the services with which that person has a religious or a deeply held conviction. So the case would be different if this woman had announced, I don't create web designs for gay people, or I don't create web designs for disabled people. There's a public accommodation violation right there. If someone with a disability approaches this person and has turned out, clearly it's a, because of the disability, clearly it's a violation of the of the public accommodations laws if the same person with a disability approaches and asks that person to make a statement with which that person has personal disagreement the web designer could refuse to include that under the first amendment the state could not punish or force that communication so i don't think i don't think that it denies people access under the public accommodations laws that's just that's my reading Okay, here's another non-controversial case, and I'm saying that sarcastically, the Biden versus Nebraska case, the uh, determination by the Supreme Court that the Biden administration exceeded its authority by canceling student loans. Um, all right, so the public criticism has been intense. Uh, we've had people saying that this, that this means that the Supreme Court has decided that wealthy and privileged people uh, rule the country and the poor people who are struggling to repay loans don't get blah, 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 blah. But, 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 I view the case, and I think the court viewed the case as a simple question of whether or not the executive branch had the authority to cancel $430 billion in student loans or whether the that was a, an act that would have been reserved for Congress, for the legislative branch. And the Supreme Court determined that the executive does not have the power to create a program, basically, and forgive $430 billion, which by time interest was added, could get close to $800 billion. All right. The 
HEROES Act, Congress did pass the HEROES Act, and it gave the president power to waive, quote, waive or modify existing statutory or regulatory provisions in emergencies. And it was primarily focused on military people going to Iraq who had student loans who couldn't repay them. But the court says that act doesn't grant the Secretary of Education this broad power to rewrite the statute to cancel $430 billion in student loan principal. And again, this is something we could have seen coming. I mean, all of these cases, as controversial as they sound, anybody who's watched what the Supreme Court's been doing over the last 10 years would see this one coming. The reason you'd see this one coming is not just because of what the courts have said, but what political leaders had said. Justice Chief Justice Roberts, in his majority opinion, quotes Nancy Pelosi in 2021 when asked about canceling student loans. She said in a statement that agreed with what the Supreme Court did, Congress has that power, but the president doesn't have power on his own to cancel student loans. President Biden himself previously had said when being pressured to cancel loans, saying, I don't have the constitutional authority to do that. Well, there was political pressure. Who knows all the pressures? And the loans were a program was put in place where students could apply to have their loans canceled. I think 26 million people had actually applied. There were 43 million people that would qualify. And the court ultimately said the president doesn't have that power. Okay, here's what could happen looking down the road. Congress could create a statute and could give the president the power to forgive those loans. Politically, that's not going to happen. The Secretary of Education now is working under the context of another statute to see if there's a way with rulemaking authority, the Secretary of Education could extend the payments, which means additional interest, but also means monthly payments would be reduced. And so we have a situation right now where there is tremendous political pushback I think anybody could have seen this one coming. So whatever the political motivations of everyone, and I'm assuming everybody's acting in good faith and try to cut people a, a break. You know, I have relatives that have to pay back student loans. I, I paid mine back. That doesn't affect the way I look at the case. But I think we all know people that would benefit, maybe some of the people in the room. If Congress says the president can do that, then the president can do that. If Congress doesn't say it, the president can't do that. We don't have a monarchy where the president waves his hand and forgives loans and, in effect, spends $450 billion out of the Treasury. Can't do that consistent with our constitutional scheme. But it's an emotional issue because it's going to be dollars and cents. It's going to be big payments for people. It's, there was a raising of expectations that have been dashed. And when the expectations are dashed, pe dashed people start to look with hostility at who it is that they think have dashed their expectations. Um, so anyway, I hope none of you had your, your expectations dashed recently. And I hope that for those that do have the need for some help, that there will be something that will be crafted. That it'll be Congress, but maybe within the Secretary of Education, maybe something that will provide some level of assistance. And Ted has a question. Yes. I was taken by the comment of the dissent in this case that focused not on the case itself, but on the question of whether the states had the standing to sue on the grounds, because it didn't affect them at all in any way whatsoever. Well, the court thought that it did, but you're right. There was some question. Of, I mean, one of the other cases we're going to discuss, the state of Texas, U.S. versus Texas, Texas didn't have standing to, to challenge an immigration policy. Uh, the court in this case says Missouri, at least, has standing because it would cost Mohila, which was a nonprofit government corporation created by Missouri to participate in the student loan market, an estimated $44 million a year in fees. And Mohila is, by law and function, an instrumentality of the state of, of Missouri. And so the harm to Mohila in the performance of its public function is necessarily a direct injury to Missouri itself. And the court cited Arkansas versus Texas, uh, a case from 70 years ago, 346 U.S. 368 for that proposition. So at least Missouri had standing. And so if you got a plaintiff with standing, then the court can take up the merits. That's that's the legal answer. Charles Barkley, by the way, just gave $5 million in his will, amended his will to give $5 million 
to Auburn. I was thinking about a previous case, although it relates to student loans. $5 million to Auburn so they can continue to bring in uh, African-American students to Auburn. And I guess that also might have something to do with loans because one of the criticisms that I've seen lately is the colleges and universities have raised the fees and tuition so much that students have taken out these huge loans in order to try to keep up. The college and uh, colleges have raised tuition at twice the rate of inflation. And so students are taking out bigger and bigger loans only to find themselves stuck now with a debt that they can't afford to repay. I see a hand. Yes, we have Peter and then Steve again. Yeah, hi. Uh, thank you for this presentation. I, I appreciate the summary. I have a question about the student loan thing. I understand that the law does not apply based on the HERO statute. I'm A friend of mine uh, is, in the, I think, is having her student loans forgiven under another um, uh, statute uh, yes. by the Department of Education. Is that still, is that still, in, uh, that's still available, right? In other words, that the only the only part of that rule that's not relevant is hero, but the but any other things are still fi- uh, still legal forgiveness. If, yes, if Congress gave the power to do that, yes. So, like for example, I think under the old program, the National Defense Student Loan Program, uh, people could get a portion waived for teaching or for engaging in other public service. Yeah, those are all okay because Congress did it. What made this one not okay is that the Secretary of Education, i.e. the President, did it without authorization from Congress to be able to do that. So, no, there are some other waiver provisions and other and other uh, educational loan programs, yes. Okay, thank you. I'm troubled by the fact that there are innumerable cases uh, where bad congressional drafting has resulted in results that nobody wanted. But it hasn't historically been the Supreme Court's uh, role, uh, or shouldn't be the Supreme Court's role, to uh, effectively rewrite the statute in order to get the result that it wanted, or maybe even the result that was best. Uh, This major, major question doctrine seems to be a judicially created doctrine, which they're using here uh, to abrogate the clear, if somewhat inartful, wording of the statute. Right. Congress could have done a better job. And it's actually, it's not the court's role to go back and rewrite the statute for Congress. Congress put the the, the statute into effect. And if there is a, a flaw, the court's not going to go back and rewrite the statute for Congress. But they are rewriting the statute into effect by inter- interposing this uh, a dubious major question doctrine. How does that rewrite the statute? Because the statute doesn't it doesn't exempt from the secretary's authority uh, cases or, or or decisions which the Supreme Court deems to be major. Okay, the deal is though, according to the court, Secretary of Education doesn't have the power to waive a program that Congress has approved. If Congress doesn't provide the president with the specific authority to waive that, now Heroes did let the president waive in the case of military people or some other emergencies. But at the time that the Biden proposal went into effect, there was no emergency. We weren't at war in Iraq, COVID, the pandemic had been declared to be over. This this is a separation of of governmental functions issue as, as much as anything else. And actually, that's all this is. This is a Congress has this power. Executive has this power. Courts have this power. Congress did not give this power to the president, so therefore it can't be implemented by the president. Congress can do that. Congress can go back tomorrow and redo it. I think. And what's the case of interposing this major question doctrine? I think that that wasn't the big decider, uh, the big issue in the case. It was a separation of powers issue. Thank you. Uh-huh. So let's see. Here's another one that was decided in the last few minutes, uh, last few days, actually, and this is Groff versus DeJoy, and this one was a 9-0 decision. This is a case involving a postal worker who worked for the U.S. Postal Service. He's Christian, and he had told people from the very beginning he couldn't work on Sundays, and that wasn't an issue because the Postal Service used to not deliver on Sunday, but Postal Service then entered into contracts with Amazon to deliver on Sunday, and suddenly this guy's being told he's got to deliver packages for the U.S. Postal Service on Sundays. And he says, I can't do that. He gets into lengthy discussions. He feels like he's being 
they're stirring up animosity because the other people don't want to have to work Sundays and he's his refusal means that somebody else is going to have to deliver those packages. Long story short, he quit. But then he brought an action to challenge that and he won unanimously. The Supreme Court said that Title VII requires an employer that denies a religious accommodation to show that the burden of granting an accommodation would result in substantial increased costs in relation to the conduct of its particular business. And it felt that the U.S. Postal Service was not able to show that there would be a substantial increased cost in relation to the conduct of its particular business. So this was the first time the court had reviewed in 50 years an earlier determination about how to what extent an employer has to go in order to show that they can't accommodate a religious belief. And 9-0, so a couple of think points about this. Number one, it affirms the right of workers under Title VII to religious exemptions, and it debunks the theory that the court is crazy and that everything's going to be 6-3 and that there is no opportunity for people to come together. Uh, this is a hopefully non-controversial decision. I haven't heard anybody really criticize this one. Right, Ted? Thank you. Um, actually, I have heard criticisms of this decision, but I won't go into it here. Um, I do have a question, though, because of because of the standard that they're using for it, which is the um, stand, which is which is which is uh, that it has to be significant that the cost has to be so significant that it might ruin the business. If I remember the um, um, interpretation, the the ruling correctly, I'm wondering if that could be if you might see other groups, let's say the blind or disabled people trying to see if they can get that sort of standing put in for themselves. I agree. I think it should be. I, I think the notion of accommodating, whether it's a religious belief or a disability, yes, I think the employer should not get away with just being able to say, oh, it's too hard. Uh, it would cause disruption or we can't do that because uh, we don't have people willing to work. No, absolutely. I think you're right. I think this is a good stepping stone. And I, I have the feeling, reading the opinion, that the court is very unsympathetic with a business that says, no, it's just too hard to accommodate. Those were the most recent. There's a couple that, that were recent, however. Let's see. This is a case decided on June 23rd, U.S. versus Texas. And here's a case where the court felt there was not standing to challenge an immigration practice. So the Biden administration had put into play a number of deportation considerations, and they prioritized deportation. And basically, they said, we're only going to prioritize the arrest and removal of non-citizens who are suspected terrorists or who are dangerous criminals or who have unlawfully entered the country only recently. And uh, Texas and Louisiana said, no, you can't do that. You got to go after everybody. You don't. You can't just make a decision. You're not going to under these guidelines, let a whole bunch of people in, into our state and every place else in the South. The Supreme Court said that Texas and Louisiana lacked an Article Three standing to challenge the guidelines. And so they have to show, the court says, plaintiff has to show an injury in fact caused by the defendant, redressable by court order. Um, and at the district court level, they were able to make those arguments stick, but not at the Supreme Court level. And the court notes that, for one thing, when the executive branch elects not to arrest or prosecute, it doesn't exercise coercive power over an individual's liberty or interest. And so the court really can't be in the position of setting immigration policy in this context. It can't say, you have to go out and arrest people. The court says that would clearly be interfering with the executive branch's prerogatives regarding the immigration statutes that Congress has passed. The court says this doesn't suggest federal courts can never entertain cases involving the executive branch's alleged failure to make arrests or bring prosecutions, but typically there's no, but typically you got to show some injury. And here there's no injury that the state can show would give rise to standing. So admittedly, in this case, they're saying the state doesn't have standing to force the federal government to do something. And as we've already seen, they held that the states, at least the state of Missouri, did have standing to challenge an allocation of funding that would have a direct financial impact on an administrative agency of the state. Peter has a question. Yes. 
Yeah, can we go back to the the prior case about the religious uh, case? Yes. Um, it is my understanding that under the ADA, the the standard uh, is um, undue hardship, right? In other words, the accommodation has to be put in place unless it causes the organization undue hardship, whatever that means. I you know there's a whole weird you know controversy what that means. If if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that this case, this religious discrimination case, has a higher standard. Is that correct? That people with disabilities have no. What they've done is they no. I didn't say that. Okay. Uh, what the what the court did in that case was redefine basically what the what the standard means, and basically the court was saying that an employer who wants to prohibit a religious accommodation is going to have a high standard. Undue hardship is going to mean a lot more than apparently what it meant for the last 50 years. And I'm suggesting that arguably that same argument could be made on behalf of people seeking an accommodation under the disability provisions. That it's not going to be as easy, I hope, for employers just to say, no, it's too hard for us to accommodate your disability. Because I I think it was suggested and I think it was correct that this case might stand for the proposition that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act means that employers have to accommodate religious exemptions, they have to accommodate disabilities, and it has to be more than just saying, oh, we can't do it because it's going to cause us undue hardship. They're going to have to, they're going to, have to prove it. In this case, the, and the Postal Service couldn't do that. So it's going to go back, and there's going to be more of a discussion. But apparently the suggestion is the U.S. Postal Service could bring in workers from other places, et cetera. And depending on the nature, because it's a huge operation depending on the nature of the business if there's only two or three people maybe it would be an undue hardship to tell the employer okay you have to let that person have every sunday off maybe that would be an undue hardship but in a big entity it's not it's more of a fact-based decision and the same thing i think could be true and probably is true right now in the disability context if you have a, a small business that has two or three employees it might be easier for the employer to show that there is an undue hardship trying to accommodate that disability. If it's a bigger employer, no, it's going to be harder for the employer. The employer can't just say, oh, no, this is an undue hardship. So uh, I'm just curious. Um, I may have my facts wrong, and if I do, I'm sure you will correct me. Um, but isn't there a case coming up to the Supreme Court that's essentially that uh, that that's arguing that in order for an ADA case to be uh, go to court, the person must first reach out to the employer and give them, I don't know, three months or something to correct whatever the problem is. Is that what's the status of that case? So I have the case correctly. And how might this tie into all of this? OK, I've heard about that case. But quite frankly, I spent my last few days trying to make sure I knew what the court had recently decided. So thank you. I'll try, if you want to send me an email, I'll try to stay in touch with you after this session. Otherwise, stay tuned for next year's Supreme Court update if I'm invited back again after this one. Yeah, I, I suspect this will be a major case next year, is, is my understanding, but I, it makes me nervous. Um, okay. don't, get, don't get nervous. Don't get nervous. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think the court's watching out for workers at this point. I think. I hope. Okay, let's see. Uh, anybody else have anything about U.S. versus Texas? Again, it was an 8-1 decision. I think Alito was the only dissenter. I have that right. Let me look real fast. Yeah, it was Alito. There was all kinds of concurrences, you know. The whole nine yards, but only Alito dissented. So this is another one that court was on the same page. Allen versus Milligan. This is a redistricting case. Okay, so the state of Alabama created a, a legislative scheme for redistricting. And what ended up happening was the way they redrew the districts. In 1992, there had been litigation under the Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act that challenged Alabama's then-existing map, and it resulted in the state's first majority Black district and subsequently the state's first Black representative since 1877. All right, following the 2020 census, where the states have to do a, a reapportionment, basically, a group of plaintiffs sued the state, saying the population growth rendered the existing congressional map malapportioned, racially gerrymandered, so the lit- litigation was proceeding. The Alabama legislature gets to, together and their committee on reapportionment drew a new districting map that would reflect the distribution of the prior decade's population growth. But the resulting map, it largely represented a previous map. And similarly, it produced only one district in which black voters constituted a majority. 
And that new map was signed into law as House Bill 1. And so three groups of citizens challenged that. They said this is a violation of Title II of the Voting Rights Act because it is making it almost impossible in a state that has six or seven representatives to elect more than one African-American, even though African-Americans constituted a much higher percentage of the population. So when it gets to the Supreme Court, oops, I just dropped my note. When it gets to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, it was a split decision, 5-4. The split was the Chief Justice joined the, uh, the, the liberals and said, it looks like the plaintiffs have been able to demonstrate a reasonable likelihood of success on their claim. And so therefore it's going to go, it, it's going to go back and they're going to have to re redraw basically. Um, and I'm not sure what impact it's going to have on the upcoming election. Uh, I'd have to go back and take another look at that, but the Supreme court went out of its way to say that, when you have such a big disagreement between the population and the way they would be represented on the basis of race, that's going to constitute a, a claim under the Voting Rights Act. And so the court struck it by four decision. Let me see. Roberts delivered the opinion and the liberals joined with him. And let's see. And Kavanaugh concurred as well. Okay, those are the six cases that I think are going to have the most impact. And the ones that obviously those six, three decisions regarding affirmative action, the, the uh, student loan forgiveness program, and the web design cases are the ones that are the ones that are in the news and constantly discussed. And even the, when I pick top six, there's a number of others that I think are a little bit more obscure, but you can go to almost any, you know, Google any web page regarding current Supreme Court decisions, and you'll, you'll see some others. There's one other one that I wanted to talk about, and this has to do in part with some work I've previously done and some work I'm continuing to do. This is a case of Hayland versus Brackeen. This was decided on June 15th of this year, and it involves the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act. Okay, so most of us are not going to come in contact with this, but for a good number of people in Texas and in the Southwest, it does have an impact. So here's a little bit of history. The United States government has had a difficult time determining what it's going to do regarding our Native American population. The original plan was to exterminate them. And when it proved to be not the best and not the most successful approach, there was an attempt then to in effect, bring Indians into the mainstream. And that's why you heard about setting up the boarding schools, uh, taking Indian children from their homes, teaching them the English language, cutting the boys' hair, prohibiting them from practicing their religion, in an attempt to, at least from the government's perspective, make them better citizens and make their lives better ultimately. It caused tremendous disruption among Native families. Many Native families hid their kids or denied that they were Indian in order to avoid having to try to send their kids in. But then the other thing that happened, once the government realizes, okay, this is not the best thing either, because we're disrupting families to too great of an extent, et cetera. So even after that program faded away, something else developed and may have been developing all along. And that is the states have the obligation to protect children. They have the obligation to make sure that children are not abused and neglected. And if there is a suspicion that a child is being abused or neglected, the state can intervene, remove the child, and then ultimately terminate parental rights and place the child for adoption. What was happening in a number of states, allegedly, is that social workers would see a Native child with Native parents and, and think because of lack of resources, et cetera, that's not the best environment for the child and would pull the child from the home under the allegation of abuse and neglect, place the child for adoption. And at the adoption proceedings, the parents were kind of excluded from the process. And so Indian children, instead of being sent to the boarding schools, were removed from their homes and sent to live with white families. Again, the state thought it was acting in the best interest of the children, thought it was acting with good intentions, but it was tearing apart families, tribes, etc. So the 
federal Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is a statute in oversimplification and tends to keep Indian children connected to Indian families. And under this statute, the feds govern state court adoption and foster care proceeding whenever there's an Indian child involved. And among other things, this act requires that an Indian child be placed, if it's going to be removed from a home or put up for adoption, it has to be placed according to the act's hierarchical preferences, unless the state court finds good cause to depart from them. And those preferences require that Indian families or institutions from any tribe, not just the tribe to which the child has a tie, outrank unrelated non-Indians or non-Indian communities. And the preferences of the Indian child or her parent can't trump the preferences set by statute or by tribal resolution, but tribes were actually given the authority to set up their own court systems to handle adoptions, domestic disputes, custody disputes involving husband, wife, fighting over custody of kids where there was an Indian child involved. And back a long time ago, when I was teaching in the state of Kansas in the 80s, I helped the Potawatomi tribe establish its own Indian court system, so that tribal court system, so that these claims could be resolved in the tribal court. All right, flash forward, there's some just horrible facts because people who wanted to adopt children, uh, the petitioners in this case, and the state of Texas filed the suit because the plaintiffs were trying to adopt the kids and they'd actually had the kids place with them for a long period of time. But the tribes then intervened to defend the law. Uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act said, no, you can't adopt these kids out from underneath us. And so people who had been raising these kids and had developed an obvious attachment to them and wanted to be able to adopt, those things were all set aside and undone because state had not complied with the Indian Child Welfare Act, which requires notification of the tribes and following these preferences and these priorities. So the court decided it was not going to disturb what the Fifth Circuit had done when the Fifth Circuit said the Indian Child Welfare Act is, a, is an appropriate exercise of the authority that Congress has under Article One, And the case is heart-wrenching because it involves the emotions of people on all sides of the issue who want to help those children, uh, and particularly difficult. Uh, Justice Barrett delivered the opinion, and Thomas and Alito were the dissenters, so it was a 7-2 decision. And so I have kind of an interest in it. I've been involved in Native American issues. I'm on the board of directors of the American Indians in Texas, here in Texas, and they are a non-federally recognized tribe. And I am going to create, the law schools agreed to let me create and teach a course on Native American law in the spring, and this is going to be an important aspect of that. Any questions on this case or anything else? I got through it a little faster than I thought I would. Ted? Thank you. Um, this case, actually, there's a personal issue in, in, in this case for me, as my younger brother in 1987 fathered a child with a Native American woman. Um, the child has now grown and, and all that stuff is, 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 is under the rug. But the question would be in mixed racial situations, does, uh, um, does the law change or does the, or does what happens to the child change in terms of which, which parent will raise them? Okay. That's a really good question. And I think that the mixed race wouldn't be an issue. I think as long as the child is, well, in this case, it'd be 50% Indian or, or or more, that person would, would fall into the preferences under the statutory preferences if that child knew what tribe the, the mother belonged to. Uh, it's, 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 it, this is like the uh, affirmative action cases. What race do people belong to? In this case, with the tribes, it's a little easier because the tribes are a political entity. They are a sovereign represented by the by the council and by their governance structure recognized by the federal government. In the affirmative action cases, you don't have the police, the identity police deciding who is African-American, who is Hispanic. In the case of Native Americans, as long as you got federally recognized tribes involved, if the mother was a member of a federally recognized tribe, that's a fairly easy case to decide. The vast majority of Native Americans in this country do not belong to federally recognized tribes. So there's another issue about regarding that issue and there's many intermarriages among tribes and even outside of the tribes with people who are non-indians 
probably the majority of Native Americans in this country have white blood, just like the majority of African Americans probably have white blood, just like the majority of Hispanics have Native blood, African blood, uh, European blood. So it's difficult when the court has to get in the business of deciding the identity of someone. It's a little easier, oversimplified, if you're talking about a federally recognized tribe, because this the court, I mean, the federal government has already determined who belongs to that tribe. And the tribes have the power to determine their own membership roles. And at least based on my experience in New Mexico, there would be all kinds of political struggles. Sometimes one political faction would get in charge of the tribe and disenroll kick everybody else out of the political opponents out of the tribe. And so were they Indians? Are, are they still Indians? Well, they were Indians recognized by the federal government while they were in the tribe. And then once they get kicked out, they're no longer Indians for purposes of any of the protections like this Indian Child Welfare Act. Human beings are human beings and no race has a monopoly on virtue or vice, but it creates some interesting legal problems and some emotional ones now for the people that have tried to do the right thing and adopt these kids only to find out down the road years later, they weren't eligible to have done that. Doreen has a question. Yes. Did you talk at all about, the, I'm sorry, I was stepped out for a little bit. Did you talk at all about the, the Navajo water rights decision where the Supreme Court sort of said, we didn't have anything to do with enforcing the treaty. And Justice Gorsuch, who grew up in Colorado and probably understands the point better than other people, uh, said, well, who are these people supposed to turn to if the treaty yeah. says um, we have a right to enough water to support our community? And so yes. I, I, did you did you speak about that one? Because I, like I said, I was away from that. I didn't. I probably should have included that one in, in my discussions i'll definitely include it in my teaching and there's there's several levels of of irony about all of this too uh so the the halen in this case that we just discussed the indian child welfare act she's the secretary of education i know her she's from new mexico she's native um yeah. she is if you want to identify blood she's half native but she's a member of the tribe so she she is native she's being sued by the navajo nation because just recently the uh the Secretary of the Interior has announced that she's announced that they're going to expand the area around Chaco Canyon where you can no longer drill. And the Navajos, that's mm. Navajo land, and they depend on the revenues from the drilling for their tribal allotments. And so the Navajos are suing Halen, saying, you have violated the rights oh. of Native Americans. And so she's in the position of having to defend, yep, I, you know, she's going to have to say, no, we're not violating Native American rights. Um, and the, the allocation portion is important because some tribes depend, if you're recognized by the federal government, there's a lot of things that, that can flow. And one of the things that can flow is resources that the tribe acquires. They can allocate it and divide it up among their members. So tribal membership is more than just some kind of a political blessing or a nice thing to have. It means cash. And in some of the smaller tribes in California, there's been these recent episodes where the tribe will open a casino because they're allowed to do that if they're federally recognized, start bringing in all kinds of money, dividing it up among the members each year of the tribe. And then somebody realizes, hey, well, if we had fewer members, we'd have a bigger allocation. So they turn around and start kicking people out in order to increase their own allocation of the resources. There are non-federally recognized groups of Indians in New Mexico and Texas elsewhere that don't have the ability to, well, Native Americans that are recognized, their tribes can do things like possess uh, eagle feathers, use peyote in their religious ceremonies, uh, hunt and fish on their own lands outside of without restriction by the state. They can open casinos and increase the revenues. You, you go to New Mexico now and virtually all the pueblos in northern New Mexico have these huge casinos. Okay, I'm not a big fan of gambling in general. These casinos have brought in a tremendous amount of resources that pueblos otherwise would not have. But people who are not members of the tribe can't do that. So I'm I'm involved with a group that is representatives of some non-federally recognized Indians, and they have a community and they have a governance structure, and their revenue is putting up signs along the interstate that passes by their 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 land, um, billboards, raising money. That way they have a small dance hall and a bar, and that's kind of about all they can do, while the ones that are down the road have these incredibly beautiful and extravagant casinos, operations, hotels. So, and the other thing that happens if you're not a federally recognized member of a federally recognized tribe, you don't have the same affirmative action protection that you would have if 
or arguably you wouldn't as if though you were a federally recognized member of the tribe. So it kind of got off on a tangent there, but thank you. Hey, Bill, do you have any, uh, any thoughts on cases that will be decided next year that you see coming uh, in the next term? Well, I'm going to have to take a look at that ADA case. And I don't, I don't right now have a list with me of all the ones that are pending, but I will provide you, Chris. I'll, I'll go through and make a list and send, send it to you so you can circulate it to everybody. That sounds great. Well, um, we appreciate your time today. We know it's a holiday and you're getting ready for, uh, again, you're going to teach second summer session uh, there at St. Mary's. Is that correct? I am. It starts on Monday. So glad you uh, got this. This was good preparation for you to teach. Uh, teach us starting tomorrow and uh, uh, thank you for uh, taking the time to prep these. I know the Supreme Court didn't really cooperate with you this year by waiting to the last day or so to put out some of the hot button decisions, but um, we appreciate your uh, taking the time to look at them and present those to us in a way that uh, uh, people can understand what's, what's there and what may come from those and seeing that, uh, these aren't just brand new decisions that these are a lot of these are things that if one had looked long term several years ago, they could have seen this coming regardless of who was on the court. Thank you, Chris. Thank you once again. I really appreciate it. Thank all of you for your participation and your willingness to sit and listen to me on a on a Saturday afternoon. So on a Sunday afternoon. So thank you very much. Bill, this is uh, Steve Lowe. I'm the uh, president of the. AAVIA now, uh, I made, we made Chris the immediate past president. Um, I have a, I have a question. I just wondered, I started reading a book uh, about the, um, the Hillman case uh, involving the hearsay exception for um, intent, uh, state of mind basically of the, it was a Hillman versus several life insurance companies. And uh, it's just, that's just an interesting uh, situation uh, that caused the, um, that it's now in federal rules uh, 803.3, I believe is the exception. But they, the Supreme Court in 1892 sort of created out of whole cloth. It, it, the Sup Supreme Court cases are really interesting. And I appreciate um, your bringing it to us, bringing them to us every year, um, and um, hope you continue to do it for years into the future. We had uh, Otis Stevens for several years, a member of the uh, what was the American Blind Lawyers Association before. Uh, he he did it for several years, and uh, now we appreciate the fact that you. Um, have done it for several years and uh, hope you come back next year. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I don't want to hug this podium, but I really enjoy speaking with you guys. Uh, you, your, your group is always engaged. Ask me questions I can't answer. And I, and it gives me a lot to think about. So when I present these cases to my students, I've got this leg up that I've already talked to a group of experts themselves who've helped me focus on, on the things that I need to think about as I present these to students. Thank you. Bye-bye.